All right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good, good. You ready to dive into the Gospel of John? All right. If, we're, if you're new here, we're going through the book of John. Today is a marathon day. I'm going to attempt to do the impossible, probably give you the most scriptures in a 35-minute period that you've ever seen in your life. So I'm just warning you, there's a lot in John chapter 6, and it's hard not to cover a lot of it, so we're going to go fast. And uh, I'm very excited. Uh, just want to let you guys know, next, I'm going to take the next couple of weeks off. Me and my wife are going on vacation, then we've got the World Conference coming up. But next week, you're going to have the privilege of hearing Jocelyn, uh, one of our deacons, <laughs> preach. And for the first time, there she is right there. Come on. And so we're super excited for Jocelyn uh, to come. And so you do not want to miss Jocelyn. Um, next week, it's going to be powerful. And so she's going to talk about thirsting for God. And I'm going to talk about today the bread of life, which Jesus calls himself the bread of life. There's actually seven I am statements. He'll say things like, I am the good shepherd. Um, he'll, he'll say, ultimately, I am the bread of life today. And as we're thinking about bread, it had me thinking about this. If you ask the average five-year-old or if, if I asked my seven-year-old kid, probably the average five-year-old, if you ask them this question, where does food come from? Their answer would probably be H-E-B. Maybe Kroger, or if they really don't like food very much, maybe Walmart or something, right? But they're going to say some kind of grocery store is where food comes from. And to contrast present day living in Houston, Texas in 2019 with, we're about to get into the Bible in first century Judaism, we need to kind of have a different perspective because we cannot approach the Bible with our concepts and understand things like, I am the bread of life. Or even understand the concept of food. We're not an agricultural type culture, whereas you're not planting your own crops and producing your own, you're going and you're buying it from someplace. But that's not the culture that we're talking about. And as we like to help you understand, when we get into the Bible, you have to humble yourself and, and go, okay, what are they thinking? Because the Bible is written for you, but it's not written to you. So you have to think, where are they? So they would not answer H-E-B Kroger. They would answer, we make our own food or we'll go to this person. We know the fishermen that we get it from. Here's another question. When you think of your favorite types of food, what comes to mind? For us, we're immediately going, man, like Chinese food, Mexican food. Or if you're like us Tex-Mex we jokingly call, we, we get Lupe Tortilla every month at our elders meeting just about. We jokingly call Lupe our fifth elder. And uh, so we're like, welcome El Elder Lupe, bless this food, amen. And so we love us some Tex-Mex, which you know originally was created. Ninfas here in Houston, Texas, that's where it came from, the Tex-Mex in Houston, Texas. You're welcome. If you're new to the city, you need to get some. Um, we think about certain genres or types of food. Of course, British has the worst food, so nobody will say British food. Um, but maybe, maybe you're thinking like, I love me some Korean food. Fried chicken, Korean is like, makes you speak in tongues. It's so good. I mean, we're going to think about specialty things. Now, when we're approaching first century, they're not thinking about a specific type of food. They're thinking of 
fish and bread. And, and like some other countries that don't have as much as we do, they're thinking of rice. That's, a, that's the kind of food I would think of right away. Let me ask you another question. What happens to our food if there's a catastrophic flood or drought? It, the price might go up a little bit, but we're going to get a plane and we're going to go get some more, right? What happens in first century if there's a flood or a drought? You starve. Very big difference. Very big difference in how we live. Now, these aren't moral imperatives. I'm not saying like we're bad and they're good. This is just reality and how I want you to start thinking before we get into John 6. One more question. Why do we work in our culture today in Houston, Texas? We, we say, we'll put food on the table. But yeah, I mean, that's not a large percentage of your paycheck that goes to food. Maybe it is, and we should, you know, go to Dave Ramsey, Financial Peace University, plug. Um, but for most, it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save up, or I'm going to get some more stuff, or I'm going to go on vacation. In first century, why did they work? Well, historians and theologians would say upwards of estimated 85% of their income would go to food. 80, imagine 85% of your income for food. So you don't work? You don't eat. So we, we've got to get this mentality and like put, put down where we are and understand as we approach the scriptures, when Jesus says words like, I am the bread of life, what is he talking about? Even the concept of bread. If my wife calls me, which she often does, and says, hey, stop by H-E-B, we need some bread. And I go to H-E-B aisle and I see all the bread. Like I have decision fatigue right away. Right? There's so many. I'm trying to just think of what's the last kind of bread. I'm trying to picture what it looks like. Because there's so many options. And again, this isn't necessarily bad. This is just what it is. If you've ever talked to a missionary or someone who's been away in a foreign country that is not as privileged as we are, and they come back, one of the first things they'll tell you they notice is all the options that we have and how many things there are. And it's just so crazy to try to choose from. For instance, here's some example of bread that we have. This is what we think of. You're thinking maybe white bread, wheat bread, whole grain bread, rye bread. You got a hot dog bun. What kind of bread do I get? Honey pretzel bread? Like, do I get some rolls? Do I get croissants, which is one of my favorites? Do I get hamburger bun, bagels, donuts, rolls, breadsticks, French bread? Do I get like the 16 kinds of different oats or the gluten-free bread? Or you really want to just get that Ezekiel bread. And this is our concept of bread. And bread is a luxury and it's something that we get. And in fact, if you're on a keto diet, no bread. <laughs> Low carb, paleo, Atkins. You don't even want to touch the stuff. And yet, first century, they had a different mentality. Let me show you the best bread just um, is manna. Uh, <laughs> Hawaiian bread. That's the best bread. I'm just going to settle the debate. Also, Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. So those two things you just learned, settle those debates real quick. The best kind of bread. I mean, this is, if you're wondering, if you ever hear the scripture in Exodus 16, we're going to refer to where manna comes out of the dew of the ground and feeds the children of Israel. It was this. I'm just telling you, so just get ready. Go get you some. The Argus are craving it. See, your temperature's changing. You're starting to salivate. It's really interesting what a picture can do. Now, let's take those pictures and let's think about the concept of bread that is their life sustenance. No bread 
no sustenance, no life, maybe starvation. And let's dive into John chapter 6. We're going to cover a lot, so stick with me. After Jesus, after this, verse 1, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, another name for Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd was following him. That's an understatement. Okay, we're going to talk and teach as we read because we've got a lot to cover. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus is healing the sick and more and more people start coming. As you would think, more and more sick people. Man, Jesus is in this area. He is here. We got to go to him. We, we need to come. And listen, they saw it as a sign. There was a sign. What does a sign do? It simply points to the source or a direction. This is the way that we're going. And so they're seeing it not just as a miracle, but as a sign that Jesus is something greater. There's something about him that carries some level of authority. Maybe, maybe he's the Messiah. And he's healing people. Verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain in that area, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? I love that Jesus poses this question because we see, look at the next verse six. He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Anytime God asks you a question in your life, He's not really unsure. What do you think about, what do you think we should do with that person? How do you think you should treat your spouse? You're going, oh, well, let me tell you, God. Hold on one second. Um, and God's going, chew my nails. I want to know. Jesus is going, I I'm testing you. See, because I want to see you're seeing all the miracles and you've discovered all these things that I'm doing and you're following me, calling me the Christ. You are my disciple. Do you think I could do this? And, and imagine, you need to understand, this story we're going to hear is in all four Gospels. This is one of the only stories that is in all four. Okay? And, and there's an importance to it. There's a reason that John wanted to place this in because he's trying to show us who Jesus was. And the specific instances John pulled out of this story, I think are very interesting and obviously Holy Spirit inspired that God wants us to be a part of the miracle. God wants us to have a place in what he's doing. He loves to work and he works so much behind the scenes you don't even know and you don't give credit to him for it, neither do I. Half of the time when we're complaining about this not working out, we don't even know all the things that he's been doing behind the scenes and the 80 miracles he did today that deserves his praise. And yet there are times he's like, I, I don't want to just do that. I want you to be involved in it. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little and he's being sarcastic. 200 denarii is like eight months salary. So what he's saying is, Jesus, seriously, are we going to like stop this right now and just go work for eight months and come back? And then maybe we'll give everybody a little bit of bread. Because we know he's feeding 5,000, but that's 5,000 men. You talk about their family, they would typically count the man and then his family. So there's upwards of 20,000 people there. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, I call him the first youth pastor. Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy, there's a dude here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Look, there's a Hebrew with a Hebrew Happy Meal. Let's get him. And, and we're going to use his little Happy Meal and we're going to be able to, well, that's not really going to do anything, but maybe that. And I think Jesus goes, man, Andrew, I like you because you know what I can do even with just a little. And the miracle of Jesus and the love and compassion of Jesus while he's teaching all day in this area and he sees the people and he's like, we have been given spiritual food and healing them, but we also are thinking about their physical life. Verse 10, Jesus said, half the people sit down. He like puts them in rows, which is why they're able to count them easily. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, again, men, about 5,000 in number. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he didn't say, Lord, please bless this food. The Bible says all of the food is the Lord's. He's actually blessing God for the food. He's thanking God for the food. There's an understanding of where provision comes from. He says, thank you. And he distributed to them those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted a miracle. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. God loves doggy bags. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So there's leftovers, there's even more. God is more than enough, more than able, even with just a little bit of a sacrifice from a little boy and the acknowledgement of his disciple that says, I believe that you can do this. I believe what I've seen. You are more than able. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, they didn't say that before necessarily when he's healing the sick, although you might think, what, what was it about this that made them go, that's the prophet? Well, as we're going to see later, there's going to be reference to Exodus 16, which is when God creates manna from the dew of the earth and tells the Israelites, as they're complaining, we're hungry, we're in the wilderness, the manna would come in the morning, and he says, go gather enough for that day. And some of them would gather it, and they gathered too much, and the next day it had worms, and it said it stank, and it didn't last. But, but what's crazy is the miracle of miracles. They said, now I don't want, God says, I don't want you to get up on the Sabbath, which we talked about last week. I don't want you to get up on the Sabbath and work and gather. So gather enough on Friday for Saturday as well. And miraculously, instead of it stinking and the leftovers not working, it actually was preserved and good. And I'm telling you, the Israelites saw miracle after miracle daily and weekly and were sustained by the miracles and, and sustenance and provision of God. And listen, this is when they get the same miracle of food. Here's what they're thinking. Exodus 16. See, these Israelites in first century, they knew the Bible more than you and me. That was their text. That was their book. That was their school. Everything. They grew up with the story of Exodus 16. And when they see it right before their eyes, they're immediately going, he's Moses. He's a prophet. 
They are tying what's happening right now with the Old Testament covenant and saying he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the political leader. He's going to be the one that now takes us away and overthrows Rome and we become a kingdom again. And this is what we've been praying for. And this is what's going to happen. And we're eluding everything. Look at the miracle. God's doing miracles. He's a prophet. Do you understand where they are? And this is so vital to their life because they're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Think about this, guys. Think about this. If we are living in the same time of like God's going to provide for us daily, you know how much extra money we're going to have in our income? 85% extra money? Whoo, I could go golfing. I don't have to work all the time. This is the kingdom of God come. There's Moses, the prophet. Let's follow him. In fact, look around. There's 20,000 of us. We could do some damage. God is restoring us back to Israel. You would think the same thing. If that's how you grew up and you saw this sign, look how Jesus responds. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I love this about Jesus. If anything, just today, let's just read the text and go, wow, isn't Jesus amazing? If that's all you get today, just a few instances of Jesus is amazing, what else are we doing at church? That's the point. Look how amazing Jesus is. He doesn't go, yes, my people, now let me have a political stance and let me tell you exactly what I'm going to do because I've got you at the palm of my hand like I've given you food. And so, of course, now you're going to come to me and say, what do we do now? Let's go. And he doesn't establish a political party to now like we would do because I've got all of these followers. And I've got maybe even disciples coming to me and going, it's time, let's do this thing. Look at these people. And I love the humility of Jesus because he knew his calling was to be the bread of life that is going to bring eternal life, that is going to ultimately satisfy the satisfaction of their souls, not just the satisfaction of a kingdom today of this world. And this humility and humble Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm not going to use this as a platform. I'm going to go be alone. Now, let me give you a picture. This is present day, the Sea of Galilee. I took this this past summer. I'm standing on what's called Mount Arbel, which is the mountain, believe that Jesus, because of the same area, Tiberius area, he's going up this mountain, and he's standing on this mountain. He's alone. Everyone has now scattered and he's alone. And what he does, we're not going to read it, but what he does is he sends his disciples away and it's late at night and they're going out. And the way the disciples, he would say, he says, go home, go to the other side. And the other side would be Capernaum, which would be up in this left corner um, to your left. You're going to see, there's going to be a little land area. That's Capernaum. That's where Jesus stationed. That's where he stayed. That's where Peter's boat was and his home was. His mother-in-law was healed there. That's mainly their main station and point of reference. And what they would do is they would take a boat out and they wouldn't just cross straight across. They would go from port to port to port because you don't want to in the Sea of Galilee, which is about eight miles long, you don't want to get caught in the middle of the sea because wind would come randomly. It's like a bowl. And if you blow a straw into a bowl, that's how the crazy storms come and people die if they find themselves out in the middle. So you don't cross that way. You go port to port to port just a few hundred feet away from the shore. That's how you travel. Jesus says, go to the other side, and he's staying alone to be with his 
father and to pray. And he says he prays all night. And he notices a wind comes and blows the disciples out further. And they are for hours struggling. And Jesus is up on the mountain praying for them, seeing them struggle. And instead of going to them, he's up there watching and he's praying for them. That's a sermon by itself that I've given. We're not sticking there because we're going to the bread of life. But that's what happens. They end up in Capernaum. But before that, Jesus is walking on water. This is the instance where Jesus starts walking on water. John says as soon as they got in the boat, Jesus got in the boat, they landed where they wanted to be. Now, John 6, 25, the people are looking for Jesus because they saw the disciples leave, but they knew Jesus wasn't with them because, of course, he's healing people. They're ready to make him king. They're looking for him, and they can't find him, so they travel all the way to Capernaum, it says, and find him. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Like, we know you weren't with the disciples. How did you get here? And he doesn't say, well, I walked on water, in fact. <laughs> Just took a stroll. You know, some of you guys walk by the beach. I walk on the water. He doesn't even answer them because God doesn't often answer your questions, but he will question your motives. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want me for what I can do for you because I'm going to get you out of 85% of your income. I'm feeding you and you have the wrong idea of me and ultimately you don't want me for me, you want me for my stuff, for what I can do for you. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. And again, he's going, don't think about work, that work aspect of your food. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man himself will give to you. For on him, who? Jesus, God the Father has set his seal. In other words, he's the one given me authority. Look to me, don't look to that. Look to me and who I am, not to just the works that I do. Then they said to him, all right, so what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is a great question because in Exodus 16, while the bread is coming, Moses has established all of these laws. So here's what you do in order to keep this happening so God is with us. So they're asking, okay, so, so give me the down low. What do we do? How do we work so that God will work for us and it'll all work out? This is what we call works righteousness. This is the wrong question. This is the question that every other religion or uh, philosophy asks is what must I do? What do I have to do? And that's a wrong question. Let me ask you this question. Is uh, Christianity or the gospel works oriented? Is it works oriented? Trick question. Not our works, but his works. That's why it's the wrong, what, what do we need to do? Like give us the law so that we can make sure God stays with us and we're his people and we can continue to get the manna and we can continue to get the blessing. I mean, is that not our culture even today though with Christianity? Do these things and then God will bless you. There's elements to that, but it's not about the works that I do. The right question is what must be done to have eternal life? And then the answer is what Jesus did. And what must be done is so much greater than you even think. 
It's so daunting, you'll never be able to do it. That's why you need a savior. That's why it took his works. That's why Jesus' answer isn't, well, obey these laws and do these things. Look what he says. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Believe in me. Not just for the miracles, but listen to me. I will substantiate God. Listen to me. And how exclusive is this in our culture? He gets worse. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? In other words, you've been doing signs, but do it again. Like, let's see that manna thing again. What work do you perform? Dance, monkey. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You see the connection? As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. We're going to even appeal to the Bible. Look what the Bible says. Look what scripture says. Show us. Do it again. We want to follow you, but we need to see more signs. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Remember how strong this is. I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, you even misunderstand Exodus 16. You're thinking it's going to be some prophet and some Moses, and it was Moses' works and what he did that did it. it. Moses didn't do that. It was God. You're not even giving glory to God. You're looking to a man. You're looking to a political figure. Oh, let me remind you, too, we've been looking at Jesus talking to different people, and it's so easy, especially in the church, to bash on the religious people and those Pharisees and Sadducees. He's talking to the poor. Jesus is an equal opportunistic offender. <laughs> because everyone had the wrong idea of him. You know what the word manna means in Hebrew? What is it? That's what it means. They didn't even know what it was. Again, I told you it's Hawaiian bread, but they didn't understand that. They've never been to Hawaii. People are still looking at Jesus going, what is he? What is it? And it gets worse. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, they're going, uh, okay. Sir, give us this bread always. Like, that's what we need. Yeah, and give it to us. Jesus, I imagine he's going, oh. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Super clear. It's me. Oh, you don't understand how offensive this is. Any I am term is pretty offensive. Again, Exodus, when Moses is at the, the burning bush, and God calls him to tell them, I am them that who I am. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. When he uses these phrases, it's very authoritative. Not only saying that, but he expounds. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son believes in him 
should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is sharing too much. Let's keep going. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Not just I'm going to give you bread, but I am that bread. And they're going, I'm, this is crazy. And they're grumbling. And I love this, verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say I've come down from heaven? In other words, you didn't come from heaven, bro. You came from Mary. We know Joseph. We know where you came from. How many guys grew up in church? Yeah? Sometimes that's the most dangerous thing. Because you're so familiar with who God is, you've lost the awe of who he really is. We could get so used to just the law and the things and the repetition and just the order of service and all the things that we forget. When we show up, he's here and he wants to work. And he brings power. And he brings life change. What God does here. It's miraculous. What God wants to do here is miraculous. And we easily yawn it off and move on because of familiarity. And it starts with grumbling and ends with, as we're going to see, anger. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God's the one drawing him. And if you're not being drawn, it's evident. What I'm seeing, he says, I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Again, he's making himself equal with the Father by calling him the Son, calling himself the bread of life. These are, these are blasphemous statements He continues, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Believes what? In me. That's the work you have to believe. I am, he says it again, the bread of life. It gets crazier. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that, and I think he's going this, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Do you understand how crazy he sounds? Some of you are going, I don't understand. Okay, we're going to talk for a second, but let's keep going. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Ugh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Like, I ain't into that vampire, zombie kind of stuff. Who is this guy? He's gone mad. So Jesus said to them, let me keep going. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Let me say something here. I I try to learn and grow in like, when they talk about public speaking, you want to be clear, you want to be concise, you want to be compelling. Jesus is none of that right now. And yet he's the greatest public speaker of all time. But that's because their eyes and hearts were blinded, except for a few. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Is, is, is the Bible, should we read the Bible literally? 
Yes or no? Yikes. Yes. But there's two types of literal. There's plain literal, and then there's figurative literal. Because every figurative thing you come up with, oh, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. You're literally not going to eat a horse, but you are telling someone literally that you are hungry. It's a figurative with a literal reality. Jesus is being figurative. And we understand hindsight, if you ever take a communion, the bread and the blood, the bread broken. He's saying, my body will be broken. The blood is drinking. They don't get any of this. And imagine where they are. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples, who? His disciples, his own people, heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Jesus isn't concerned about offending you. In fact, he wants to offend you sometimes to see where you really are. Because here's the deal. True faith isn't when I understand and agree about everything God says. That's not true faith. Sure, I agree with that. I understand it. I got it. When I don't get it, that's when I'm going, I trust you. I see you. You are good. I've experienced that. I'm trusting you when I don't understand. And how many times have you had, maybe even this week, where you're going, I feel like I'm supposed to do this, but I don't get it, and I don't understand why God's telling me to do it, but I trust you then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, verse 63? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. In other words, God knows whose are his Verse 66, and we're ending here. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him because they didn't understand, because not necessarily what he did or the experience that they had with him, but because they didn't want to truly follow him. They just wanted to follow his miracles because of what it did for them. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go his way, away as well? I love that. He looks at the ones he called you're going to go to, and Simon Peter steps up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, we've already left everything. We don't have a plan B. That's called Christianity. That's called being a Christian. That's called being a disciple. Like, I throw away everything else. Jesus says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God if you are not focused on plowing ahead, because if you're still looking behind at your past, you're going to go off course. We've left it all. Where else do we go? You alone have the words of life. And Jesus still doesn't stop. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? In other words, I knew what I was doing. Everybody else is gone. 
And yet, one of you is a devil. God, Jesus, man, chill out. He's like, just, I don't care right now. I'm mad. One of you is a devil. Imagine them going, you, me, me, you, 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 me, right? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now we're looking at Jesus and we're going, what does all this mean? Let me encapsulate this with three words. Jesus gives salvation, satisfaction, and security. Jesus says, I'm the only one that can give you salvation because I'm sent from God for this mission to save your soul. And when your soul is saved, I actually also bring satisfaction. See, you're going to continue to be hungry by bread. You're going to continue to be hungry in your physical body, but I will satisfy your soul. That doesn't mean you don't need to keep feeding on me, but there's something I'm going to do with the Spirit of God I'm going to place on you that you are satisfied in me. And you don't have to keep running to other things because of what I did in salvation. And that then breeds security. There's an assurance for your faith. Because again, it's not my works, it's his works. It's not what I do, it's what has been done. But listen, the next thing, then you will do more for love than you will do for fear. When you understand that, Jesus is my salvation. He's the only way. And he satisfies my hunger and my soul. Then I have this level of security and assurance that I know I'm going to be with him because of what he's done. And now my love is going to compel me to do so much more in this world for him than fear ever even attempted. This is what it means to be the bread of life. That life isn't just physical. The Greek word is zoe, which means spiritual life too. Jesus sustains us. And this is why I want to pray and end. I want to ask you to stand to your feet and we're going to have our worship team come and we're going to sing this song as an act of prayer and worship to our God that says this, there is no one else for me, none but Jesus. If that's your heart's cry, I ask you to sing it loud. I ask you to worship the Father who is in this place and deserves to be worshiped because of what the Son did. And you will and you have in Him salvation, satisfaction, and security. Father, we ask for your presence, for your spirit to move, for you to be our life. In Jesus' name, amen.